You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. We've got slide notes that you can follow along with. We've also got those in our um, bulletins if you want to access these at a later time. If you've got a smartphone, then you can pull those up and look at those at, a, at another time as well if you need to. Um, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It's a passage that we have been cautiously coming to over the past few weeks as a church. In fact, we spent a couple of weeks just talking about some of the topics that we find in Revelation 17 and 18 just to help set the stage for what we would be talking about. So we spent a lot of time talking about sexual immorality and what the Bible defines that to be and how we avoid that. We talked even about the topic of divorce and how if divorce isn't handled biblically, it results in sexual immorality. And so we spent a lot of time last, last week and, and, and whatnot trying to work through what Scripture has to teach about that topic and, and how God makes provision um, when, when times are needed for that and, and how to do that appropriately. And so we've been cautiously coming to chapter 17 and 18, and now we will approach 17 and 18 today and, and trust that the Lord will lead us and guide us and help us to apply what he says here to our lives today, all right? What I like to do here at our church, um, because we've got a lot of people visiting today, I try to summarize everything that I'm gonna say to you in one sentence at the very beginning so that if you nod off or get distracted or or something like that, you, you can at least come back to and say, okay, I know what he's talking about. I know where he's going with today's sermon, okay? So I'm gonna give that to you today. Our summary sentence, everything that I'm trying to communicate and what we're gonna try to unpack The world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus. But we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. For our kids, because we've got some kids that are are younger in, in here today, their summary sentence, the things of this world are very attractive, but Jesus offers something that is better. The world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus. But we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life. And if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. I told you earlier when we read our text, and so if you're listening to the podcast right now at a later time, I would encourage you to read Revelation 17 and 18. We're not going to take the time to do that again right now. But I told you that ultimately what we have here is a tale of two cities. Um, it's a picture of Babylon and it's a picture of Jerusalem that's going to come in the chapters after 17 and 18. There is a picture of two cities and and what these cities represent and and what these cities stand for and ultimately what these cities have to look forward to. And, And we get into that first city today by looking at the city of Babylon. The goal of these chapters is to show us why we should worship God and not Babylon why we should worship God and not the things of this world. The things that this world would desire us to follow after are not the things that we should worship. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 are most likely interpretive details for the sixth and the seventh bowl judgments that we've already talked about. So this isn't necessarily anything new. This is just additional details to the bowl judgments that we've already looked at as a church. Over the past several months, we've looked at some threats to the church. We've talked about people who take the mark of the beast. 
We've talked about Babylon some. We've talked about the beast and the false prophet. Ultimately, all of these things coming from Satan. And so we've talked about Satan and the threat that he poses to the church. What we are seeing now at the back end of Revelation is the defeat of all of these enemies. We see what happens to those who bear the mark of the beast in chapter 15 and 16. Today, we are seeing what happens to Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. In chapter 19, we're going to see what happens to the beast and the false prophet. And in chapter 20, we're going to see ultimately what happens to Satan. And so we are seeing Jesus win the victory over all of our enemies. Our goal is to worship God and not Babylon, not the wealth, not the power, not the pleasures that this world has to offer. We don't worship those things. We don't long for those things. We don't pursue those things. And lest we, lest we think that, well, this doesn't really apply to me, like I'm not all that concerned about power, right? This, this fleshes itself out differently in our lives, right? Like, like if we desire to even be the best wife and the best mother, in this church to the detriment that we now seek to tear other people down through gossip and slander so that we look better as an individual, that is us giving into the allure of power and praise and glory from others in thinking that it will bring satisfaction to us and we begin to tear other people down to try to win that control over people. And we want people to think that we're awesome, and so we will seek to, to tear other people down. So you may not desire to be in authority or in power at your job. You may not desire to exercise power and authority in the ways that we typically think about it. But man, sin is subtle, and Satan's tactics are subtle. And if we're not careful, we yield to those things, and we become one who loves the things of Babylon more than the things of God. The goal is to see that we don't worship those things. We worship and pursue God. The language, and we've talked about this before in Revelation, it's not new language, it's Old Testament language being applied in the New Testament. And so we won't take time today, encourage you in your own studies if you're intrigued by chapter 17 and 18 to look at Jeremiah chapter 50 and Jeremiah chapter 51, Ezekiel chapter 23 and Ezekiel chapter 27. These are chapters that use very similar language about God's destruction in the same ways that he's talking about it here in Revelation 17 and 18. So it's not new stuff. It's, it's the way that God's always talked about the destruction of cities, right? So a lot of it's symbolic. A lot of it's allegorical. We're going to see, if you, if you take the time to look at those chapters, you'll see, man, God was talking this way in the Old Testament as well when he would bring judgment. In fact, in the Old Testament, he also called other cities prostitutes. He does this to Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. He does this about the city of Tyre in Isaiah chapter 23, Verses 16 and 17, and so it's not uncommon, we said this earlier, for God to call cities or people groups that, that are worshiping other gods to talk about them in terms of sexual immorality. Okay, so very consistent with how God has talked in the Old Testament. The, the prostitute-type language that we're reading about in 17 and 18 that, that's almost graphic and, and inappropriate in some age context, it's given to us in this, in this, in this language to emphasize the seductive appeal by which the enemy seeks to lure us from Jesus. Okay, so think about what a, a prostitute seeks to do, right? The prostitute seeks to dress themselves up in such a way where they are a, an appeal to the eyes, right? Like they cover up the, the, the evil, they cover up the, the, the sorrow of the situation, they try to dress it up, they try to become an allure to those who come by. That's the language that's used here to help us see the tactics of the world. It's meant to lure us away from Jesus. 
we back out of Revelation a little bit and go to a chapter that's clear, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, hopefully you, realize, you read that and you say, well, that doesn't have to be in the future. And that can be, that's right now. Like I know people that fit this description, right? Like sometimes I fit this description. So it's coming, but it's also already here. People who love pleasure more than they love God. Paul warns us against that type of mindset in 2 Timothy 3. Babylon and the beast are talked about a lot in these two chapters. Um, some people would say this is an, uh, an allusion to Rome. And, and we talked about this earlier, that, that Rome is certainly at play in the understanding of these two chapters, that Rome certainly fits the bill of this description. Even the idea of these seven hills or seven mountains that are mentioned here, Rome was considered a city of seven hills. It also has a lot of emperors, and so we're told that these seven hills also represent seven kings, right? And so you can see the, the emperors in Rome's history and how they persecuted the church. So certainly Rome fits a lot of this description. doesn't fit it perfectly, which is why I think that a lot of things are at play when we talk about Babylon and the beast. We're talking about real, real empires in the past, real empires to come in the future, but also real empires today as well, right? Systems that are against God, systems that are opposed to God. In fact, I would say I think that the beast and the, the picture of Babylon here, it represents cities where there is satanic deception and opposition to God. It's the total culture of the world apart from God. In fact, the text describes to us Babylon being the mother of all uh, cities that fit this description, right? So, so you could fit North Korea into this, right? You could fit Planned Parenthood into this. You could fit the porn industry into this. You could fit the religion of Islam into this, right? The form changes as the years go by, but the essence remains the same, right? That, that it's opposed to God. It's opposed to the things of God. It seeks to ruin lives, seeks to destroy the church, seeks to draw people away from Jesus. The woman in the picture here represents seduction. She rides upon the beast who represents persecution. These are Satan's two main weapons for destroying Christians, to seduce people and to persecute people to walk away from Jesus. We see a close connection between the woman and the beast by the fact that she rides upon him. An alliance between the seduction of the world and the tyranny of governments that would seek to persecute the church. This chapter is so confusing and the seduction is so great that even for John to comprehend it, it takes a special effort. It says in John chapter 17, verse 3, the angel that came to him carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Like John can't even look at the city in the city to get this vision. The angel has to take him out into the wilderness. And we've seen already in Revelation, the wilderness is a place of safety for God's people, right? Like he takes the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness where he gives them manna on a daily basis right, guides them with a, with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud during the day. Wilderness was, was God's stomping grounds in the Old Testament, 
right? And so the picture here in the New Testament is, man, I take the church, I take my people into the wilderness where I keep them safe. And so he takes John into the wilderness to kind of pull him back so he can see all of it and he can see the seduction that's at play here. And even from that distance, it says that John marvels at what he sees. Like he's even a little bit enticed by what he sees of the world. Let's jump right in and I wanna give you four points today. Um, And and what we're gonna do is I'm gonna try to give you a lot of clarity today and then next week we can kind of work back through and clean up anything that's left unsaid um, for those that are here, okay? Number one, and all four points are application driven. Number one, separate from a world that is seductive. Separate from a world that is seductive. For our kids, the world will try to trick us into thinking that sin is good for us. We have a responsibility to separate from this world. Separate from a world that is seductive. For our kids, the world wants us to think, to trick us into thinking that sin is good for us. Number one, the world is attractive in its methods. To get, a, to get even a better feel of, of the, the allure or the seduction of a, of a prostitute, look to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs talks in various places about the allure, the seduction of one who serves in that capacity, who seeks to entice people to come and, and, and participate in activities with her. And the world is described in this way. It's attractive in its methods. Mankind is deceived by the masking of the evil. <clears throat> Look at the way she's described, right? She's described as one, let's see here, um, she was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Right? Like she gives all the appearances of security and wealth. Um, if you've seen the, the movie The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read the book, you know that the white witch is described as, as one who is beautiful. Right? She comes riding in and you would think, hey, this is, this is somebody that I can feel security with, right? She even offers Edmund like his greatest desires. You know, tell me whatever you want, Edmund, and I can give it to you, right? So Edmund is lured into thinking, here's a woman who can take care of me. There's security with her. She can, she can give me my greatest desires, my greatest needs, right? That's, that's what sin looks like. That's what the world looks like. It entices us. It decorates the evil. It masks the evil, so that we believe that, that it's what we want. We believe that it's good for us. There's prosperity and security that's promised. Revelation chapter 18, verse 16. So we jump ahead to the second chapter. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. This beautiful picture of this one who, who brings death and destruction, right? Because back in chapter 17, She has this cup of gold, but it's full of abominations. It's full of the impurities of her sexual immorality. In fact, on her forehead, it's written, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, abominations. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. You would expect the best cup or the most beautiful cup to to come equipped with the best drink. Right? For those of you that have maybe seen the old Indiana Jones movies, in the third one, The Last Crusade, they come to where they're trying to pursue the Holy Grail, and they come into this room, and there's just a room full of, of different kinds of cups. Right? And there's, there's beautiful ones that are adorned with jewels and gold, and, and they're very attractive. And 
So the man who's pursuing this for unwholesome reasons is looking for the Holy Grail so he can achieve uh, immortality. And he picks what he believes to be the most beautiful cup out of all of them, right? And he drinks it and it brings death upon him, right? And the, the irony is that it's the, it's the wooden cup, it's the clay cup, it's the one that doesn't offer much in looks that actually holds the key to life. This woman comes with all of the, the decor, all of the beauty, but she's masked the death that's behind her. We have to be prepared for a world that will make the things that it offers to us look very good, very fulfilling, and yet we'll find ourselves very empty if we drink. That cup is, it's full of sexual immorality. It's full of sports. It's full of hobbies. It's full of good things that we pervert. We make them ends in and of themselves. See, God created all things so that we could enjoy him. We could use things to point others to him. One thing that God has given me in my life is a love for football. I love to coach football. And one of the reasons that I desire to coach football as a Christian is to point people to Jesus in my coaching. And one thing that I tell my guys constantly that I coach is is that, hey, I give up time for my family to coach, and I want to be the best coach possible because I want our school's football team to be the best team in the state because I want people in in other schools— who don't hear about Jesus every single day at their school to want to come be a part of Trinity. So they're in our Bible classes and in our chapel services and hearing things that otherwise they wouldn't hear, right? Like I want to use a good thing that God's given me, a love for football, and I want to use it for ways to glorify him, to to draw honor to him. But if I become one who becomes very in love with football and football alone, man, I've, I've abused the good thing that God has created and it's become an idol in my life. And I'll share with you later how, how, that, how that's flushed itself out before in me. But that, that cup is full of deathly contents, and we have to be careful when we drink of it. Mankind acts poorly based on poor judgment. He drinks of this, and he's intoxicated by the promises, the luxury, the pleasure, the security that's promised in Revelation 18.3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. When we give into the things of the world, we become addicted to it, we become blind to it, and we become numb to the consequences of the things that it gives us. The world is attractive in its methods, and we need to be cautious and careful. Number two, the world is effective in its methods. It's effective in its methods. It causes many to commit immorality with her. It causes people to run after things rather than God, and it exercises authority or enthronement over many peoples. It says in Revelation 17, 15, she's described as, a one, as one who sits on the waters, right? And then we're told what the waters are. She is basically pictured as being enthroned upon waters. What waters? Verse 15, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, right? The world's scope of influence extends to all corners of the earth, right? Like it encompasses the earth. Everyone is subjected to her, to her seduction, right? We're going to see, unless your name is written in the book of life, and, and unless you are actively trying to separate, man, you're going to give into this. You're going to be seduced by it, and you're going to drink the deathly contents of what the world offers. It exercises authority over many peoples, many multitudes, nations, and tongues, But the truth of the matter is that the church is victorious in its resistance. The church is victorious in its resistance. The lamb will conquer 
and his people will stand firm. One of the true uh, things that we talked about earlier, one of the clear things that we talked about, it says the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. It's people who have their names written in the book of life that ultimately will persevere during this time, right? And we've, we've said this in our church multiple times now that, that Satan in all of his great deception doesn't deceive any true Christians. They, they, don't, they don't buy it. They don't get seduced by it. Their names are written in the book of life and they are preserved by Jesus's salvation. They are protected. And they're protected because they also go the second step and they do what God calls them to do and that's to separate from these things. This description of Babylon is given and then God cries out in verse four of chapter 18, from heaven, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. He says, come out from that. Separate yourself from that. When Jesus shows up and Jesus wins this battle, it says in chapter uh, seven, verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him. Those with him also conquer. They are the called, the chosen, the faithful. The only way to win this war is to be with Jesus, to be aligned with Jesus. We were talking about a family member that we loved dearly yesterday and, and how she's in need of some things right now. She's, she's, she's had her world kind of rocked by sin and, and she needs God's good favor upon her life right now. And we were talking about how to help her. And, and, I, and I shared with some of my family members yesterday, I said, Here's the thing. Here's the thing that we have to realize is that sexual immorality is being harbored within this family right now. We cannot expect God's good favor. We cannot expect God to take care of her and bless her to the fullest when there is known sin that's being tolerated. Like we're not with Jesus in this alignment right now. That this family's not with Jesus and it's being with Jesus that conquers this war. It's being with Jesus where we can be guarded and protected. Our names are written in the book of life. We separate ourselves from this type of evil. This same call to separate is echoed in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 51, 45, and in 52, 11. Both of these places in Jeremiah, God is calling out to his people to separate from physical, literal Babylon back then. He's calling them not to participate in her sins so that they don't bear her judgment. There's some clearer passage in the New Testament about how to do this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. These three verses are a great summary of Revelation 17 and 18. That we don't love the world because the world is passing away. The world is going to be judged. Don't love the world, the things of the world. Don't love the, the, the things that are enticing about the world. Love God. To love the world is to not have the love of the Father in you. Do the will of God and you abide forever, John tells us. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're called to separate ourselves mentally, right? Like to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's why being in the word regularly is so important. It's why being in a local church is so important. To be exposed to the things of God, to be exposed to the word of God, to hear the word of God proclaimed, explained, to be able to apply God's word together. It's what renews our mind. It's what helps us be separated from the things of this world. We're to be separated in our lifestyle. John chapter 17. I love to hear Jesus pray to his father because I think it gives us a great model of the ways that we're supposed to pray. And in John chapter 17, we get to listen in on the son communing with his father before he goes to the cross. And in John 17, 14, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Ephesians chapter five, verse three. And then I'm gonna explain both these passages. Ephesians chapter five, verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon them, the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Jesus prays and he says, God, I'm not calling you to take my people home. Like, wouldn't it be so easy the day that we became a Christian that we just got to go be with Jesus in heaven? Like, no more sin, no more temptation, no persecution, right? Like, we just get to go be with Jesus. Like, like we realize that we're sinners. We realize we need a Savior. I want to go be with my Savior. And Paul even says, man, I long to be with Jesus. I want to stay here to minister to people. But man, I just really want to be with Jesus. Jesus says, God, I'm not telling you to take them. I'm telling you to keep them here and to send them into the world to make a difference. Don't, don't, don't isolate them. Send them into the world and make a difference. So we talked this morning, how do we do that? How do we separate ourselves without completely isolating ourselves from non-Christians? I think Jesus is a great example of how this works, right? Like Jesus sits down and eats and fellowships with sinners but does so in such a way where they never get the impression that their lifestyle's okay, that it needs to be repented of. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a great example, right? Like Zacchaeus, hated by people. He's, a, he's an immoral tax collector. He, he imposes uh, fees and, and, and whatnot on people that, that weren't supposed to be there. And so he's getting rich off of the exploitation of others. Nobody really likes him, but man, he lives in the best house and he has the best things. And Jesus comes to town and, and Jesus says, I'm going to eat with you. And he ends up at his house right? And so people criticize Jesus because he, he eats with sinners. Like, it's not okay. Like, Jesus fellowships with darkness. And what happens when Zacchaeus walks out of his house? He's like, man, I got money, and I just need to give it away. I'm, I'm giving it back to people, 
right? Like, like I've stolen from people and I'm gonna give you back more than I took from you. Like you can't criticize Jesus for hanging out with darkness because Jesus shines light into darkness. He doesn't go hang out with darkness and become dark. He hangs out with darkness and shines light into the darkness. That's what we're told to do in Ephesians here. He says, don't become partakers of the darkness. Be light in the darkness and change the darkness into light. That's what Jesus did. Zacchaeus comes out from that lunch completely different. I mean, he's just radically transformed. He's giving his money away. He's completely submitted to Jesus. He walked into that lunch completely self-centered, completely in love with the things of this world. He comes out divorcing that love for the world and completely embracing Jesus. We're to model that. We're to go after people of darkness that way. We We don't participate in the darkness. We don't participate in the activities of evil. We bring them into our life, into the things that we do. We expose them to the light. The church is victorious in its resistance, but we're called to be in the world, to be sent into the world, to be separated, but to be influential in the world. And yet the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is how separated are we? The the Christians that you know, are they any less materialistic than other people that aren't Christians? Do you... Do you find yourself questioning, why do I know so many Christians that are involved in sexual immorality? I know a lot of non-Christians, but I seem to know a lot of Christians who find themselves involved in adultery. Do we, do we find ourselves seeing Christians being less involved in some of the things that we're called to be not involved in at all? Do you find the Christian families that you know being committed to the church or being just as committed to the hobbies that their kids like as though they are no different than the non-Christian families that you know that do that? Do you find yourself looking at your non-Christian friends and seeing divorce happening in their lives just as much as you see in your Christian friends? Are we, are we any different? Are we separated from the things of this world? Do our lives look different like we're called to? Do our schedules look different? Do the way that we spend our money look different? Are our marriages different? Are our parenting methods different? Is our purity different? Is our Uh, hoarding of possessions different? Our choices, our lives, do they look different? Charles Spurgeon says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. And sometimes you go into even the church and you're like, I don't know who's a Christian and who's not a Christian here. Everybody kind of looks the same. And there's some questionable behavior here that, that makes me wonder, believer or not believer, Christian, not Christian, are these people with Jesus or against Jesus? Man, Charles Spurgeon says, when the world is not influencing the church like it's not supposed to, that's when the church advances. That's when the church makes the greatest difference. How separated are we? Number two, and we'll go quick now, prepare for a world that is murderous. For our kids, the world is ultimately trying to destroy us. Prepare for a world that is murderous. The world's goal is to destroy the church. The world's goal is to destroy the church. Back in chapter 17 of Revelation, verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Chapter 18, verse 24. In her, Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. She finds pleasure in the death of the saints 
the world wants to destroy the church, but it also wants to ruin just about everybody's life. It says, judgment is coming upon her. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And the world has sold goods that were unfulfilling to the buyer. The world has deceived people with untrue promises. It's used sorcery to convince us that it can meet our greatest needs. And people have bought it or rejected it. For the rejectors, the world seeks to kill Christians. For those that buy it, it leads to their death. It says all who have been slain on earth were found in her. She is the the reason for their death. She leads them to death. We know from Scripture that sin The wages of it is death. Prepare for a world that is murderous. Man, the things that the world offers kills us. The cup, the gold cup of her abominations, it will kill us. Number three, remain on guard for a world that is resilient and organized. For our kids, the world will keep trying its best to defeat us. It doesn't go away. It doesn't stop. Here's the difference between Jesus and the beast. In Revelation chapter 17, Uh, let's see here. I think it's verse 8. Yeah. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. If you've been with us through Revelation, you know that sounds kind of familiar because Jesus is described as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The beast here is being described a little bit differently, right? He's the one who was, who is not, and who is about to come up. It's a counterfeit Jesus. This, this beast is about to come up. Jesus is coming down from heaven to get his people, right? This is coming up from the abyss. He was, he is not, and he is about to come. The idea here, Jesus is eternal. He's the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The beast is one who was, who is not, but is about to come. The idea here is that, like we've said, the beast keeps popping up throughout history, right? But in different formats. The same Jesus that walked with the disciples is the same Jesus coming to get us one day. No difference there. Same Jesus. The Antichrist changes throughout history. The, the, the persecuting governments change throughout history, right? Like Nazi Germany is, is, is down, but, but communist China is up, right? So the beast is still here, but not the same beast, right? Like there, there used to be a beast, and, and now he's not anymore. But these other beasts keep popping up. And so the idea here is that we still get the same essence, the same seduction, the same persecution, but in a different format. Jesus is eternal. The beast is not. The beast keeps popping up, but in different formats. That's the idea behind that language there. Was, is not, and is about to come. The beast appears defeated. He appears as defeated and reappears in a new form throughout history. The succession of kings that we even read about, these kings that continue to pop up, it's a reminder to us that the seduction and persecution will keep coming. We also find that the world and its leaders are working together in their evil pursuits. There's unity in their purpose. Look at the end of chapter 17. It says, The ten horns that you saw, verse 12, are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. 
They hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who with him are called and chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So you, you, you have unity in their efforts, and then all of a sudden the world kind of turns on itself. It says that the beast goes after the prostitute and begins to destroy her and ravish her. And why is that? Verse 17, because that's what God wants. And, and that's, that's always what's so great about Revelation, is that when we read about it and we read about what's happening, it's exactly what God wants to happen. It says, for God has put it in their hearts to carry out the purpose of being of one mind and have, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. It's part of God's plan. The world and its leaders are working together in their evil pursuits, and they're completely submitted to God's purposes. Remain on guard for a world that's resilient. It keeps coming back, and it's organized in its efforts. Take comfort that it's organized according to God's plan, though. Number four, reject a world that is terminal. It's, it's, it's dying. It's on its deathbed. The things of this world are passing away. For our kids, the world will ultimately fail when Jesus returns. The world is terminal. It's powerful, but it's short-lived, right? There's a shortness to the overall reign of what is to come. We talked about the one-hour aspect of the reign. The world doesn't see it. The world is blinded and prideful about how it's going to keep going on, right? And says in um, chapter 18, verse 7, As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. She's self-confident about herself and self-confident about her reign, Babylon is. But ultimately, she is being led to destruction. Just like Laodicean's church in Revelation 3, verse 17. Remember, they were kind of blinded to who they were. And they thought they were well-clothed. They thought they were pure. And God says, no, you're not. You're not. It's powerful but short. Number two, it opposes the Lord of lords and king of kings who opposes it. We talked about the true identity of the city being written on the forehead. Blasphemous names against Jesus. What I love about chapter 17 where it says they wage war against the lamb and the lamb wages war against them and will conquer them, it answers a hypothetical question or a rhetorical question in chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 4. Remember the beast was described in all of its glory. They worshiped the dragon for he had given its authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? We get the answer here. Who can fight against the beast? Jesus can. And Jesus doesn't only fight against the beast. Jesus wins the battle against the beast. He defeats Babylon. He defeats the beast. He wages war alongside his called and chosen and faithful ones, Revelation 17 says. It's not just Jesus who's standing victorious. It's, with, it's those that are with him. It's us. The faithful, the called, the chosen I mean, those, those words echo from Romans 8, 28 through 30, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called. He keeps them persevering to the very end. Nothing can separate them from his love, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 talks about us being chosen in him 
man, Jesus calls us and he keeps us faithful to him and we stand victorious with him. Number three, it's self-destructive and cannot last. The beast and the kings turn on the prostitute and they destroy her. The only victory they can win is a victory against themselves. Man, the idea here is that they've basically used her up to the point that they've, they've realized it's unfulfilling. We've used her up. There's an emptiness to it, and I almost hate it. Hold that idea, because that's what I'm going to close with. They, they've used up the world. They've found it unfulfilling to the point that they almost resent it and hate it now. Babylon becomes desolate, 18 verse 2. Look at Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34. You'll see some of the same language. She becomes desolate. She loses her influence. Man, I love the picture there. It it reminds me of some of the Yahoo pictures that you might see sometimes of abandoned Olympic facilities. Anybody ever clicked on those links before where where you're transported overseas to some of these cities that had the Olympics, and when the Olympics left, they had no reason for these facilities that they spent millions of dollars on? And you can see like, bobsled facilities from the Winter Olympics that have like ivy all growing over them and stuff. It's really weird. Like it's almost like a ghost town of what used to be a place where glory and celebration took place. And now it's just a desolate place. That's the picture that we have here in Revelation. It it, it becomes haunted almost with, with desolate things. And I love the fact that it's described as the merchants can't sell the goods anymore, that it's no longer seductive. And I, and I want to point out one point here at the very end of all the things that they're trying to sell one thing that really stood out to me that will not be bought anymore. It says in verse 13, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. Man, the promise here is there's coming a day where slaves will not be sold anymore. We won't have to worry about the type of slavery that we still hear about today. And, and we've been We've been um, brought, it's been brought to our attention even the sex slavery that's taking place around the world today. There's coming a day where if you've, even if you had the slaves, nobody's interested in buying them. Like, like the seduction is gone when Jesus comes back. It's a beautiful picture. Talked about it falling in a relatively short time. Final judgment comes. Babylon's sins have reached heaven, chapter 18, verse 5 says. Remember back in Genesis, the, the Babel area? Remember they tried to build the tower to heaven and God thwarted their efforts? They actually fulfill their goal here. They make it to heaven. And 18.5 says their sins make it all the way to heaven and he brings judgment, appropriate judgment upon them. The destruction is described in terms of a millstone being cast into the sea. It's a beautiful picture because you don't go retrieve a millstone from the ocean. It's too heavy. The cost of doing so is just too expensive. That's why so many ships stay buried in the ocean, right? Because the cost to try to resurrect those things is just not worth it. The picture here is that the angel throws the millstone into the ocean, and it's a picture of the destruction that comes upon Babylon to the point that, that there's no more singing in Babylon, there's no more craftsmanship in Babylon, no more marriage, no more light, no more anything in Babylon. It's been completely judged The application for us, what do we walk away from this with? Like we've seen that the world is seductive. Man, I want to leave you with this thought. Determine what you love most about this world. Determine what it would look like to love it too much. And then tell someone, for those in our church, tell someone in your accountability group. 
If you're not a part of our church, tell someone that's important in your life so they can effectively warn you if you allow it to get to that point. That's a bold application because you're really putting yourself out there. You're saying, hey, I could be prone to do this, and if I ever do this, I need you to call me out for it and call me back to a right perspective. I told you I wanted to end with personal application for me. I told you that I love, I love coaching football. I love it. I love watching football. If I'm not careful, I would, I would completely immerse myself in football, which is kind of silly because it's a game, right? Like sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm, I'm distraught over college students in Athens, Georgia that lose a football game on a Saturday afternoon. And it's like, why, why do I care? I don't know why I care, but I do. I do. Um, and, I, and I love to coach football. And when I set out to coach football as a Christian um, about seven years ago at Trinity, my motivation, the reason that I wanted to do it was to invest in young men because it kind of got me out of the classroom and in a more relaxed setting where I could pour into their lives. And I already told you before, I wanted to see people come to Jesus through football. I wanted to see our football program become so successful that people from outside of our school wanted to come enroll in Trinity and hear about Jesus. That was my two motivations. And I wanted to win a lot of games so that people wanted to come hear Jesus. Last year, a few months, so a little over a year from today, um, I was offered the offensive coordinator position for the varsity football team. And it was like, man, like this is the big time. Like I've been coaching middle school football, which is great, but man, this is the big time. Like I'm moving up in the world. And, and so I readily accepted it. Don't know that I really thought through what potential dangers were there from a sin standpoint. Certainly thought through the dangers of the scheduling standpoint. I don't know that I ever thought through the dangers of what it could do to my heart, okay? So I, so I take this job and, and immediately I become immersed in a desire for self-glory, like, I want, I want people at our school to think I'm really good in this position. I want dads to think that I know what I'm doing. And, and very quickly, we get into the football season, and, and my goal, my goal becomes on Friday nights to have dads patting me on the back on the football field after a game. Like, it's, it's what I'm consumed with. So throughout the week, it's game plan, game plan, game plan, because I want dads to pat me on the back at the end of the game and say, man, you're awesome. Like, like you're the best coach here. And that becomes my focus. And so throughout the season, like we lose the first two games and there's not a whole lot of patting on the back, right? And so like I go back to the drawing board and I'm like, man, I got to fix this. Like, like I got to fix this. And so I start pouring time and attention into getting better. And so then we start winning and we start winning a lot. And we start winning by like 30 and 40 points and like the pats on the back just keep increasing. Like my family's having to wait to see me because I got so many dads patting me on the back and it feels great, right? It feels awesome. And then we get into the playoffs and, and we lose the championship game. We're like, we're like four yards from winning a state championship and we just can't get the ball in the end zone. And I remember sitting in a deer stand, which is another thing that I love to do. I'm sitting in a deer stand like a couple of days afterwards and there's been so much self-glory from the season, right? There's been so many pats on the back. And I feel empty. I basically feel completely empty in this deer stand. And I'm like, how can I feel so empty when, we, when we, we're just yards from winning a state championship? And, and I almost resent coaching football just like the, the prostitute is resented in this chapter, right? Like, like we've purchased everything from her. And it's unfulfilling, and so now we, we hate it, and we want to just wipe her out. Like, we want to get rid of her. 
And I went through a season where I was just like, I don't even know if I want to coach football anymore. Like, like, I, like I almost hate it right now. It's, it's not done what I wanted it to do. It didn't bring me the self-glory that, that was not fleeting, right? Like pats on the back came on Friday night and then Saturday morning people have forgotten. And so I had to step back for a couple of months and reevaluate. And I went to my head coach and I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be the offensive coordinator. I want to go back to like a lower level coach that doesn't get a whole lot of glory because I want to go back to investing in boys and in young men and pouring into them about Jesus. And I want to see our, our program be successful, not so that I get the glory, but so that people come and hear about Jesus again. That's an example for me, how I took something that I loved and was using it for good purposes and became completely in love with it to my own detriment. And, and I loved it in an unhealthy way and became convicted over it. And so I want you to do the same. I want you to evaluate. What are some things that you love in this world that you could very easily love too much? It become damaging to you. Go ahead and picture what that would look like so that you can communicate it to somebody else so they can come get you if that happens, right? Like I had never communicated to my accountability group, hey, football becomes an idol for me if it starts to look like this. Had I communicated that to them, they would have been more aware, hey, things have gone awry in Adam's life. Think about what it could be for you that you could love too much. You could become seduced by the promises of it. Share it with somebody else so you can avoid it. From our family worship question standpoint, what are some ways our family needs to be careful in loving the world too much? Man, this is a great way for you to evaluate your calendars, your schedules. Like, what are we doing as a family? Is there anything we love too much as a family? Number two, what are some ways our family can show our love for God to others more together? How do we show our love for God to others more together as a family? Okay, I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna let you guys go get ready. We're gonna sing one song, and then as soon as we're done singing, we're gonna all... If you've got kids in the nursery, go grab your kids. We're going to go outside and watch Ava Turner be baptized. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clear warnings in Scripture about our responsibility to separate from the things of this world. God, I pray that we would heed that warning, that we would see that the things of this world leave us empty. When we drink from that cup, as, as beautiful as it looks, it promises so much. God, help us to realize that it will cause us to resent the things that we love so much because they will not fulfill us. Help us to remember you give us things to enjoy you, not so that we can enjoy the things. God, convict us. Help us to evaluate our lives. Help us to apply this, not to just be mesmerized by 17 and 18 and how confusing it is and some of the crazy things that are talked about. Help us to see the real-life application that we don't need to love this world that if we do, the love of the Father is not in us. Help us to strive for purity in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.